10 out of 10 awakened Americans agree, freedom is in peril. Which brings up the question, does good old-fashioned activism, the grind of informing others about issues and getting others involved and pressuring legislators to take certain positions on key issues, does that still work in today's environment of very ambitious totalitarians? That's what we'll be discussing today. I'm Paul Dragu, and this is Freedom is the Cure. So joining me today is Robert Owens, and he is the Midwest Regional Field Coordinator for the John Birch Society. Robert also has a legal background. You spent, uh, is it a couple decades in, in the legal realm and as a prosecutor, as a trial lawyer? And so Robert spends a lot of time traveling through the country and working with folks on various pro-liberty agendas. Robert, thank you so much for joining me. Paul, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so I guess the very first question I, I, I had for you, uh, and we were kind of discussing it off mic, is does activism, uh, nonviolent activism, this activism where people get involved and they keep up with the issues and they pressure legislators, is that still effective? Well, Paul, not only do I think it still works, I know it still works. So let me give you you know, two uh, examples that I think are are really fresh. I mean, they just happened this month. We're, we're just October just ended. So, uh, from just October's news. So, uh, I'll give you a couple stories. First from Ohio. Uh, we had a situation where the Ohio department of education had in the previous year passed an equity resolution that required specific, um, equity, diversity, inclusion training for all faculty and staff in Ohio schools and a uh, mandate that uh, schools incorporate uh, sort of the critical race theory kinds of things that had... uh, you know, had been so popularized by the uh, the left, had required that uh, in Ohio education. And uh, one of our uh, members... And this was passed by the state legislature? Well, this was passed by the Ohio Department of Education, which was an administrative agency, essentially the state school board, uh, as it were. They have local school boards, but yeah. they also have a state school board uh, as well. And, and I take it there was no input from from any voters or anything. This was a decision made by the board, right? Well, there was certain there certainly was input, but they passed this through. And I mean, literally, it was a board meeting that happened at midnight one night when they jammed this thing through with very little uh, community input, some, but very little. See, I think that's the kind of thing that people would hear and be like, what's the point? But that's where you're going. Yeah, well, and, and the point is is this. Um, we had members of the John Birch Society that would not take this laying down. And so uh, constantly, month after month, uh, they continued to put pressure at the Ohio Department of Education, uh, kept having meetings, uh, showing up to, uh, to testify at the Ohio Department of Education at their monthly board meetings. Uh, finally, so much so that the president of the, uh, of the school, state school board refused to allow people to testify on issues. I mean, if you're going to talk about critical race theory or 1619 project or diversity inclusion or social emotional learning, which is another sort of buzzword for all this same, you know, poisonous concoction, you were not allowed 
to give public comment at all. Like you were cut off from this. So what, uh, what, what our members did is they continued to have people come down, continue to have people rejected on doing that. And then we would, uh, have a, a press conference at the state house in the rotunda and have the people give their testimony. And of course the press started picking this up. All the senators offices were right there. So we would incorporate going around to all the various Senate offices. And so month after month, for a year this went on finally this month it reached such a crescendo where the senators were so incensed by what was happening here and especially the the cutoff of you know speech about the issue uh that not only were enough members of the state school board educated uh they uh, issued uh, a, a new resolution that repealed the equity resolution and the president of the uh, Ohio State School Board resigned in disgrace uh, as well. So this is an example where, you know, what's difficult here is that there aren't the sort of like instant results, you know, the instant gratification that sometimes people are looking for in today's social media culture, right? This is an old school roll up your sleeves. Show up to the Capitol for a year. You know, and keep hammering at it and don't take no for an answer and and ultimately we can have success and we're seeing that on a bevy of issues whether it's second amendment issues where now seven states have passed laws to nullify all federal firearms laws uh, in their state where we're seeing movement on bills that at the state level will uh, prevent Uh, mandates uh, for COVID jabs uh, from Mm -hmm. taking place, where we're seeing pushback at a serious level on Critical Race Theory 1619 Project, where we're going to have a whole new slate of school board, you know, uh, or local school board members that are finally running for elections and getting involved and really getting people, you know, aware of this thing. So on so many issues, not only do I think this works, I know it works because we have tangible results. Well, you had mentioned um, just a few minutes, a seconds ago, one of the things you had mentioned is vax mandates. Uh, you've spent a lot of time over the last couple of months. You've been going on radio shows. I take it maybe you've been speaking to crowds and whatnot about vax mandates and with your legal background, you've been able to uh, to help people or at least say that, hey, uh, through medical and religious exemptions, these are ways that uh, you can defeat this or at least resist this. Now, I, I wanna ask you something about that. I know that you've heard, but I wanna make sure, one of the things that I've seen and have read and perhaps even have heard about is that they're not being necessarily honored. You know, there's people out there, they're putting in their exemptions, whether it be a private employer, whether it be a federal employer. Have you heard that there is resistance to employers, federal and or private, to exemptions? Uh, And if so, is there any point in the exemptions at all? Yeah, so, um, you know, it's a good question. And, And we are seeing in a number of instances people that have put forward uh, exemptions on a religious basis and properly so in the proper way and that the employers are not honoring those things. So, uh, and, and in fact, you know, on uh, Constitution Corner, on the JBS website, Constitution Corner, I actually have a video that spells out a, you know, step-by-step what happens in detail 
uh, and what you should do in, in those types of cases. And I'll briefly sum it up here. If the employer goes down that track, they're looking at serious financial liability as a result because you've got a dead bang lawsuit for all your damages associated with that, and they're going to lose. Federal court law is abundantly clear that if you put forward a, an exemption on a sincerely held religious belief basis and your employer does not provide you an adequate uh, accommodation on that basis, then they, they lose and they will pay all your damages, uh, back pay all your wages, reinstate your position, and pay all your legal fees as part of it. And if you're in a situation where like you had to take out, you know, like a second mortgage on your house to sort of make payments on, on your monthly bills while you're trying to, uh, you know, while you're waiting for that litigation to resolve, like they pay all the fees, all the interest, all those things that are associated uh, with that uh, along the way. So have we gotten that far down the road yet? So <laughs> what we have found is that employers, when they are, they're trying to bully and cajole people into it, but when they get letters from lawyers, then they back off. Is that what we've seen? Yeah. And, and I mean, 95% of the time, we're seeing that. In other instances, because these issues are so new and because in many respects, you know, uh, they'll have a, um, you know, they'll have a, a deadline, but then they'll move the deadline back and then they'll move the deadline back and then we'll move the, the deadline back. It, it reminds me of Muammar Gaddafi back in the 80s with Ronald Reagan where he's, Gaddafi's like, this is the line of death. And then, you know, Reagan would move the ships in. Gaddafi <laughs> would say, well, no, this is the line of death. And Reagan would move the ships further in. We have a new line of death here. Well, you know, speaking of, we have some mandates, I think, that are... are the, the, the deadline hit today, right? I, I believe it's the Air Force. Uh, yeah, uh, so, there, so there are some deadlines hitting. What we're finding, though, is that, you know, they end up still moving them back, right? And part of it is they know there's no way around this religious exemption, that they're going to be in big trouble if they try to enforce it. So a lot of this becomes sort of a psychological game where they're trying to stress people out. And, you know, when there's sort of this sort of Damocles that's hanging over their head, they'll just finally just give up and go get the jab because they're, you know, they can't take the, the stress load. Why, 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 why would employers do this? Uh, because you would think the easiest, the, the path of less least resistance is just to honor the exemptions right because it, it's written in the law it seems like a like a like a thing that that would make sense what what's the sense in giving your employers a hard time you you're likely to lose them you're likely to make them unhappy you're likely to even run in some legal trouble or, or is it the other way around is it because the the, the government since the feds are on the side of this is is there more pressure to, to resist? 
the exemptions? Yeah, so I think you're going to see, you know, a, a couple different motivating factors that come into play. So, for example, for hospital systems uh, and such, you know, that's going to be a, a situation in which they're going to have certain quotas that they need to make with their vaccinated personnel. And what they'll be told is that, hey, for Medicaid and Medicare funding, you know, if you don't have a certain threshold of vaccinated staff, then you're going to be cut off from those funds, right? So in in those cases, employers are motivated to get people. And even if it's a function of they're gonna lose staff and lose effectiveness of their hospital, they're more interested in the federal dollars coming in mm. than they are having an actual effective hospital or actually treating people. Uh, sadly, we, we see that with a lot of hospital administrators. In some instances, you have these major corporations uh, these sort of woke corporations, as it were. Uh, a lot of times they're even members of corporate members of the Council on Foreign Relations. And they're marching forward on this because it's part of a specific political agenda uh, to destroy American sovereignty and to move us towards an internationalist kind of construct. And this is just the price of doing business, right? And they're going to be backed by, you know, the international... Um, you know, investment class, uh, the George Soroses and, and those types of people uh, of the world. And so, you know, they're financially, they're set. And this is not really about money for them. It's about power and control. Right? I wonder what, what percentage of, of, of employer, employees actually work for those because we don't have, I mean, we live out here in the heartland, you know, there's no Coca-Cola, there's no Nike, Nike's out there or whatnot. Yeah. You know, I, it, well, like, for example, John Deere is a, I mean, that's a corporate member of the Council on Foreign Relations. That's interesting. That's really, really, I, I, I didn't even know that, you know, that's a, that's a really interesting case because John Deere is obviously a, a tractor and ag. Yeah. yeah. And you sort an of think of it as, a, as sort of an iconic yeah. American, huh. you know, company. Uh, but, uh, you know, there it, uh, there it is. And of course, you know, Warren Buffett and anything that's associated with Warren Buffett is going to be hardwired into uh, the sort of new world order of companies. Right. Right. And again, th these guys have all the money that they need. They don't need any more money. It's it's not a function of money. It's a function of power and control. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, a lot of other companies, right, that are smaller uh, firms, they're just terrified and they don't know what to do. Right. right. They're seeing what, you know, the big companies are doing and they're like, well, I, you know, I mean, do we they just do want to survive probably. Yeah. Right? right. And so they're in this conundrum where they just don't know uh, what to what to do. And so they're in this sort of, you know, hard spot of, geez, I, you know, we're darned if we do and darned if we don't. Where are we? And so we're seeing companies sort of make all kinds of decisions all over the place. Uh, but uh, in, in, in with regard to the law, there's certainly going to be, you know, a financial recompense and there's going to be a lot of happy lawyers. Are we starting to see a flurry of uh, lawsuits flying around already? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> really? th I mean thousands and thousands and thousands from uh, from around the, the country. Where yeah. are they ending up in district courts and federal courts? And well, so. You a lot of times many states also have the same type of discriminatory 
uh, types of things. So first of all, what's important to point out is that Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act is a federal law. So what that means is it doesn't matter where you live in the United States or any territories, there is federal law that says that there are religious exemptions that apply to the employer-employee relationship. So um, some people are saying, well, I live in a state where we don't have that. No, no. Everybody has that, at least at the federal level. Now, some states don't have a mirror provision. Mm -hmm. Most states do. I, Ohio, for example, has a mirror provision that in, in many ways mirrors um, a federal law. And so you can file that either in federal court or state court. You know, you can do it in either direction. And a lot of times it just sort of depends on, you know, the, the law firm or the, the lawyer that mm -hmm. you have. Uh, in the case, and it depends upon the local judiciary. You know, right. if you're in a situation where you live in a jurisdiction where there's lawyer, you know, there's judges that are sort of friendly to you know employee cases, right? That's where you want to be uh, in that situation. Um, so we, we used to joke, uh, uh, you know, a, a good lawyer knows the law, a great lawyer knows, knows the, the judge. judge yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you, like, where should you file? But then I thought it's like, well. You're most likely not filing pro se, so your your lawyer will know where, where to file. Yeah, and you want to get a lawyer, and the reason is on these types of cases, you get legal fees. So a lot of lawyers are taking these on a contingent fee basis, meaning they don't recover until they recover against the employer. Yeah. And, and for lawyers, these are great cases, and the reason for it is you've got a company that's got deep pockets, and because you're client is the employee, but the employer's paying the bill, well, you can bill that file as much as you want. You know, you go to the, take a bathroom break. Well, I'm thinking about the case. So let's <laughs> bill $300. You know, you're sitting there having a burrito at lunch. Well, let's think about the case and we'll bill it another $300. In a normal sense, you know, client would never pay that, but yeah. you know, the employer doesn't get a say in it, right? If they violated somebody's constitutional rights, that's part of the penalty. You're making it sound like uh, this is these are the types of cases that lawyers, uh, private lawyers, would be salivating at. Like absolutely, wow, yeah. oh yeah. Okay, so we'll wrap this part up. So essentially, it's absolutely worth uh, continuing to file exemptions. And it sounds like what you're saying, if they deny it, it's time to get a lawyer. Find one of those lawyers who's just chomping at the bit to take one of these cases on because. It's not just federal. I guess you're saying there's even state laws yeah. that are on the books that are most likely to support uh, your exemption, whether it be medical or religious. Maybe there's others. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I'll tell you what. I mean, the, uh, this you know the Biden administration mandate might as well call it the Full Plaintiffs Lawyer Employment Act. No kidding. <laughs> I had no idea. Well, I'm glad I asked. Uh, so let's let's move on to one last uh, topic. It's 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 on it's one that um, you know we know a lot about here at the John Birch Society, the Convention of States. But there is, um, I would say, you know, out in the general public, this is not something that's generally known about. There is a so-called group of Republicans or or Republican campaigns saying this is the answer, uh, most likely in the way of term limits and balancing the budget, but. We have been opposing this campaign. This so can we talk about some some victories of first of all maybe kind of quickly what exactly a convention of states is why is it appealing 
and why we work to defeat it and how we have succeeded in that. Sure, Paul. So, you know, convention of states, you know, it, it reminds me of, you know, everybody's got that, you know, that friend that uh, is always into quick, quick, get quick, rich schemes, you know, pyramid schemes. And, and ultimately it's all, you know, a bunch of nonsense. And, you know, you end up with a bunch of stuff in your garage. <laughs> it's usually what, uh, what the reality is. And so this is sort of the political version of a get rich quick scheme, right? For that, conservatives. Yeah, for, for conservatives. And, but you know what? The left is using this as well. So there's something called Wolfpack, which is a far-left liberal organization that's pushing sort of the same concept. And the idea is to use Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution to create a new constitutional convention. Uh, and and they, want it, they marketed it as, hey, we can limit uh, the topics that can be addressed in a constitutional convention called under article five but the reality is they can and they've got no legal historical basis i mean they're you know they're terrible lawyers and terrible historians you know when you combine the two it's just not a good scene right for, for the constitution um but, and really it's it's just a it's a payoff and it's a money-making thing i mean mark meckler and his family you know they've turned this into a little cottage industry where they're making four hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year plus you know five-star travel uh wherever mm. they go uh to sort of you know uh, be snake oil salesmen right. uh, on this thing they're buying ads they're paying a lot of money for ads to convince uh, I, the reason I bring this up is because, as you know, and I'm sure you're going to go into it, is a, this is a very dangerous idea because it sounds so appealing because it's essentially, like we said, it, it sells this idea that we can fix something as soon as we have this convention. We can make major, major inroads and preserve liberty. So people who are obviously hungry for major change, this is appealing to them, and that's part of the danger. Yeah, and that's right. I mean, they tell it as, hey, this is the solution to federal overreach. Right. When when the reality is it doesn't. In fact, it doesn't even address the right problem, right? I mean, you know, if we change the Constitution, I mean, Congress isn't listening to our current Constitution. What in the world makes you think they're right. going to listen to a new one? But the problem is not our Constitution. The Constitution is fine. The problem is that we don't have an electorate that is enforcing the Constitution as it was designed. You know, there's this story of uh, at the end of the last Constitutional Convention we had was 1787. And uh, when it was done, September 17th, 1787, these luminaries, uh, our founding fathers, are strolling out of Independence Hall. And this lady runs up to Ben Franklin and says, Sir, what have you given us? Because the whole thing was done in secret. Nobody knew mm. what form of government they were going to come out and, and propose. And Franklin rather famously says, A republic, if you, if you can keep it. Right. And, and, and that's where we get back to this activism issue, because a Republican form of government, and I say that from, a, you know, a small r a Republican form of government is a very special type of government that really doesn't exist anywhere else in the world and has very rarely existed throughout all of human history. But it requires an active citizenry. It requires grassroots political action because we have to understand that politicians are a lot like children's toys at Christmas. Some assembly is required, right? <laughs> and, and most specifically a backbone, right? Yeah. And it's we the citizens 
that do that assembly. You know, we're like push them up. Yeah, I, I mean, and that's right. And if we're not holding them accountable to their oath of office, if we're not holding them accountable to what they're supposed to be doing at the federal level, they're supposed to be limited to the enumerated powers in the Constitution. Under Article 6, for state officials, right, they swear an oath of office, not just to the state Constitution, but to the federal Constitution. You see that in paragraph 3 of Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution. Mm -hmm. So a state rep, a state senator, swears an oath of office to the U.S. Constitution. What that means is that if the federal government is violating you know, those enumerated powers, the state government has an absolute duty to engage in things like nullification right. to rein in mm -hmm. federal overreach. I thought nullification was racist. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, here's how racist it is, Paul. I mean, per perhaps one of the most famous uh, and, and really successful uses of nullification uh, was in 1850, Millard Fillmore signed into law the Fugitive Slave Act. And many uh, northern states, including Wisconsin, uh, where we are uh, right now, passed nullification laws that said, not in our state. There you no. go. And, uh, and in fact, sheriffs... Uh, were, were directed under the state nullification provisions that should a federal marshal or agent come into Wisconsin, for example, to uh, engage in any kind of slave rendition, the sheriff was to meet that federal agent and show him to the border, <laughs> right? Not right. here. You're not welcome. Good. Right. Good. And That's so, uh, you know, the first... Uh, the first nullification bills were actually drafted by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison mm -hmm. uh, as well. So, I mean, this is something that's as, you know, uh, American as apple pie. And, you know, if, uh, if, if, if you're somebody that likes to throw on some, uh, some Snoop Dogg and <laughs> get down with a J, you know, you can thank Thomas Jefferson for nullification in 14 states. They've nullified mel uh, marijuana laws, federal marijuana laws. So you can party with nullification. <laughs> nullification parties. Wow, we, we are really missing the boat on, on the hyping up on nullification. Uh, going back to, to the con con, what, what's again, you got a recent uh, story for us of, of where, you know, again, Mark Meckler of Convention of States came with his, his, his caravan through town and, uh, you know, peddling snake oil and then we shut him down? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we've seen that all over the country and we've had victories all over the country in the process. So, you know, one example we had. Uh, uh, one of our members got wind that uh, Mark Meckler was doing a uh, a major um, you know rally in Lansing uh, for the Michigan legislature to sort of get that uh, done. So you know, a handful of of members put together you know a couple hundred dollars worth of materials, and we showed up the day before. Uh, in Lansing at the State House, and we proceeded to, you know, have we meetings. being Birchers, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, John Birch Society uh, members uh, proceeded to meet with all the various members uh, of the uh, of the state legislature, visited all their offices. Uh, in many cases, got opportunities for one-on-one -on -one meetings 
with a number of the legislators, including the key legislators that were on the committee that it was assigned to. Mm. And uh, as a result, we killed that thing dead as a doornail in Michigan. And this was the day before Meckler shows up with a huge, you know, $100,000 kind of rally where he's got all kinds of, you know, paid people and all the rest that came down. So, you know, I mean, we flushed that down the toilet before they even got out the, you <laughs> before know. Before it came out, huh? <laughs> Yeah, before, before his plane landed, we had flushed. Uh, all of his, uh, you know, all the value uh, of that action. In fact, um, you know, we've had their leaders, uh, leaders of convention of states that, you know, we put questions to them. You know, you, you, when you meet these folks, they're, they're usually just undereducated mm-hmm. uh, Americans. And when you start giving them some knowledge, we've found that there have been, you know, even leaders in the convention of states that have flipped on the issues and they're now members of the John Birch Society. Well, good for them. Do you have any more stories or should we wrap it up to start telling folks how, you know, they're listening right now. They're probably just chomping at the bit. Man, how do I get in on this? Yeah. So, um, you know, I mean, the success stories that we have uh, around the country are are so numerous and we could spend 45 minutes uh, just going through uh, success stories. Uh, all over the country on all kinds of issues, dealing with election integrity, dealing with uh, critical race theory in the schools, dealing with COVID uh, vaccine mandates and pushback and, and all I, the rest. I did. I have one more question for yeah. you. And it's something we discussed slightly off mic. Uh, elections. Elections. Uh, I think there's one tonight. And obviously next year we'll have midterms and whatnot. Um, I, I would think it's safe to say there's some folks out there and, and perhaps they're thinking, what's the point? You know, we even have a Restore Election Integrity Project uh, because we know that there's lots of issues to them. What do you say to those folks who, who are listening and perhaps saying, ah, what's the point? You know, what's the point in getting involved in elections if, uh, if they're just going to steal them? Yeah, and, and Paul, it's a great question, right? So uh, what I would say is this. First of all, um, you can't complain about elections being stolen if you're not willing to be an active patriot in working in your state house to demand election integrity. Now, what we have seen is that, you know, we've been on the election integrity issue for decades. You know, in fact, uh, one of our uh, one of our council members, Kurt Hyde, is a nationally recognized mm-hmm. uh, expert on election law, was recently, um, you know, honored at the Mike Lindell Cyber Symposium for his 1986 article. <laughs> yeah, for his 1986 articles, for his 2010 article. Yeah. I mean, we've been so far ahead of this issue that's been probably mm-hmm. our biggest problem. But you know, now I mean, I'm meeting with state legislators, and they're like man, you guys were so right. Like, we should have seen that coming. We're like, all right, well, fine, that's, you're right, we were right, but now let's do something about it. And we're starting to see, you know, that really come into play uh, throughout. So um, now it's it, it's not easy, right? I, I'm not going to promise by any stretch of the imagination uh, that uh, this is going to be an easy overnight fix, but we are seeing movement in the right direction, and we have to continue to be engaged uh, at the state house level, right? That's where we're going to get the most bang for the buck. And then also, you know, citizens should be going to their local board of elections, find out what machines are being used, start having public comment at the board of election uh, meetings for them to get rid of these machines. Uh, and to, to go back is there has to be a paper, paper trail, trail that can be audited. And I should say, 
the paper trail should be both as to the vote and it's critical that when people register to vote that there be a paper trail that's auditable on that as well because this is the key to how elections get stolen and the clerk that you know that processes the uh, voter registration, like their name, whether it's initials or employee number, whatever, should be on that as well. And that's a critical component. Great. Well, let's wrap it up. Like I said, I know there's people listening and, and they're saying, I'm, okay, you've convinced me. Activism still works. Yeah. What do you recommend? You're you're a coordinator for the John yeah. Society. How do they get involved? What, what do well, we what, recommend? Yeah, so activism is, is great, but smart smart activism is better. And, and the reality is that working in a team environment is going to give you the absolute most bang for the buck. And in that regard, there's one organization that has 60 years, more than 60 years of experience and a level of resources that nobody could possibly duplicate at all. And that's the John Birch Society. So, you know, if you want to be effective, if you want to truly be effective, join us at the John Birch Society. You can go to jbs.org, uh, get involved. When you sign up, that will trigger things for our local field coordinator. We have professional field staff uh, that are, uh, uh, you know, on staff coast to coast, nationwide. Uh, you will get contacted by one of our field staff members and, and, and we'll, we'll work with you to either create a local chapter if there isn't one right in your community. In most cases, there are uh, in, in your community and you can get plugged in with like-minded patriots so that you can get after it right now. We've got some exciting tools, uh, both currently available and coming soon, that will really make a difference. So go to jbs.org, sign up. That's the best thing you can do right now. Robert, thanks so much, man, for taking the time. Thanks for going through all this. And uh, you heard it there, folks. Go to jbs.org. You can get information on membership. So there you go. Robert, thank you for joining me. And uh, thank you for listening to Freedom is the Cure. <laughs>